a trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership. And the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome to the show. So glad you could join us today. I'm going to do my best to make this worth your while by offering thoughts, observations, truths, if you will, on the passing scene in a crisp, upbeat fashion. Kind of like a white Bryant Gumbel. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, we live in such a time, maybe that's something I shouldn't even, even joke around about, right? Because that, that could be misconstrued as, as insensitive and... Oh, goodness. What was it I was seeing today? This, this is what prompted me to, to start off just a little bit off the cuff. It was uh, a response to a video game. Now, I'm not into video games. I have kids who are into them quite a bit, but it's, it's just not my thing. And I'm not saying that you're bad. If you like video games, I'm just saying it's a world that I'm not that familiar with. But there are characters within video games, which if you play, you know. And these characters have, you know, interesting, well-developed character arcs and lifelong stories that explain why they are the way they are. And this is the part that just blew me away was uh, apparently someone was describing uh, this one character in particular and she's known for her bursts of fury. Okay, well, now there's probably a story behind those bursts of fury, wouldn't you think? Well, the answer is yes. And, and the, the story is that this video game character has a disfigured face. I don't remember what the explanation was, if it was some childhood tragedy, some accident or something. But nonetheless, it's a young woman whose face has been disfigured. And part of how she copes with having to go through life with this disfigurement is she, well, she blows off steam in these incredible fits of fury. And I guess she's really, really good at it. Now, to me, the amazing part is the video game developers didn't tell the first person who complained, using those kinds of words is absolutely unacceptable. How dare you use the words disfigured face? And I don't know what we're supposed to do. The, the video game company relented. Oh, we're sorry. Oh, we'll change you know, the description or we'll change the character. Whatever. How can we make you happy? But here's, here's where it leaves the rest of us, including those of us who really don't play video games and I don't have any emotional attachment to this character or that character. I do have an emotional attachment, however, to this thing called reality. And sometimes words are used to describe reality or to at least uh, to the best of our ability, describe what reality is. And I don't mean to sound pedantic when I say this, but reality isn't always pretty. You know, there are people who have tragic circumstances that they work through or overcome or just have to learn to live with. Now, personally, I think uh, I think it's absolutely okay. I'm thinking for a moment before I, I open my mouth further and, and insert my foot, because I really don't want to, uh, I don't want to offend anybody, but um, I have the privilege 
of having a number of sight-impaired individuals who listen to my show on a very regular basis. And, you know, my, my kids were actually the ones who commented, oh, is this your friend who is blind? And I'm like, no, you're thinking of my other friend who is blind, or that's another guy. There's, I, I seriously have, like, four or five, and I'm talking close friends, good friends, listeners, who I, com- I communicate with on a pretty regular basis, who are blind. And I think what, to, to me, makes them remarkable individuals isn't the fact that, well, yeah, they're blind. I mean, they'll be the ones to tell you. It's not like... Uh, it's not like, you know, I'm going to have to announce, and now let's go to a call. Kevin, you're blind. Welcome to the show. No. What's remarkable is they are thinking, active people who don't let one particular obstacle stop them from participating in what's going on around them. And I love them for that. But now I'm sitting here thinking, well, gee, is there a better way? I mean, I said the word blind. I've said it several times now. Am I committing a terrible faux pas? By doing so? Because I honestly don't believe any of them would take offense at being recognized as such or introduced if someone didn't know, you know, that uh, this person was blind. I don't think they would take offense at someone saying, you know, okay, well, here's, here's why this person has this, this uh, particular point of view or this particular take. I don't know. We, we are so hypersensitive and there, there are some people who so thrive on that need to be offended. And it's not for a good reason. It's not it's not for something justifiable like, well, I I just want to help people get along and and promote, you know, unity or promote uh, togetherness or just respect for one another. No, it's like I'm looking for some reason so that I can flex my sensitivity feathers and and signal how virtuous I am when nobody else seems to get it. And I don't mean to ruffle those incredible feathers that you're peacocking around and showing us, but uh, who cares? If you're just doing it for the sake of trying to draw attention to yourself, you're not a good person. Because all you're really trying to do is, is make a spectacle out of, well, look, but I'm against insensitivity. So why don't you tell me what you're for? Why don't you show me, in fact, by the way you live your life, by the way you treat other people, what matters most to you? Oh, what's that? You're walking away? Oh, you see somebody else you need to talk to right now? Okay, I get it. No, seriously, I get it. It's hard work to be a decent human being. In the sense that to really live up to your principles, to be honest, to be forthright, to be steadfast, especially at a time when everybody else is feeling a little wavery and maybe not as, as firm in their convictions. And to be able to do it diplomatically or kindly, to allow other people to have their faults and hope that in return they'll allow you to have your faults with the understanding that we're all trying to work on them, we're all doing our best to, to you know, root out the, the dross and, and, and become, you know, a more refined version of ourselves. That's what I'm looking for. So I'm sorry. I, I, I know I've gone off on kind of a, 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 a critical rant here. But I'm just tired of the virtue signaling. And I'm tired of the, the idea that, well, you have to think about everything you say because it could be uh, less than inclusive. 
so freaking what? If there's any offense being taken, it's because you're choosing to take offense. Because there's certainly none being offered. And I believe that's the case in about 99% of the times when people say, oh, I'm so offended. Some people, I get it. They want to be edgy. They want to, you know, of all the flavors in the world, they want to be salty. They want to draw attention to themselves like that. All right. Well, (laughs) you know, more power to them. I happen to think there may be a better way. And I happen to gravitate towards those people who don't just try to catch my attention by being obnoxious. But instead, try to pull me in with this magnetism of being a genuinely good person. And if there's a characteristic that could best be used to define these people, I'm going to say it. It's love. It's their ability to love people no matter their circumstance, no matter whether they are driving a nice car or they just rolled up in a, you know, rusty uh, pile of junk that's shaped like a car. Doesn't matter if they're wearing fine designer clothes or they're homeless out on the street. It doesn't matter whether they smell like a very expensive perfume or they've got body odor because they haven't showered in a while. If you can be the kind of person who can love and see the good in those people and recognize that beneath that grubby exterior is a soul of infinite worth, not just to God, but to everybody, then I would say you are doing your part. You are living as a decent human being. And I understand that is a tough ideal. Like many, I, you know, when I'm walking down the street and a homeless person starts to approach me, I get this really strange case of selective blindness. Whoa, nope, I don't see anything. And I just keep on walking, eyes straight ahead. Oh, I didn't see anything. I'm ashamed of it. And I'm trying to work on it, by the way. If nothing else, eye contact and a simple acknowledgement, uh, a sincere, hi, how are you? Now, that can be tough, especially if you're dealing with someone who's on their way over to aggressively panhandle you. But the bottom line is, if you want to be known for something, be known for what you stand for. Pull people into your orbit because you are an undeniably good person. But don't bother with the the phony virtue signaling. Well, look, I'm against bad things, too. That's the cheap way to do it. It doesn't accomplish anything. The other way takes more effort, but it's ultimately worth it. Let's give that a try and see how that works. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. 801-331-8113 if you'd like to join the conversation. Came across an article, uh, I guess it was yesterday. This is from Brad Palumbo. And as you know, there is still a lot of talk about, we got to lock the country down harder. we got to shut it all down. we got to protect people from COVID-19. And, and that has a lot of people, you know, especially state and local politicians, looking to the federal government. Please, sir, what can you do to save us? And so there are free-spending leaders in Congress looking to spend trillions of dollars more to help stimulate and support the economy that they are currently helping to uh, demolish. 
and Brad Palumbo's report on the Foundation for Economic Education's website points out how there is rampant fraud plaguing, plaguing rather, these stimulus programs. And I don't mean to dampen anyone's enthusiasm, but it means that, uh, you know, all that money being borrowed, all that money being spent, somebody's going to have to pay that back. And it's going to be you and me, our kids, our kids, kids, etc. Here are a few of the high points. Brad Palumbo says, well, the fight continues over election results. Washington, D.C. is quietly negotiating the details of another COVID-19 stimulus bill. Democrats want trillions more, while Republicans argue we should limit further expenditures to just $500 billion. Neither side, though, he says, is taking time to reflect on just how poorly that first round of stimulus went. Don't forget that the $2 trillion CARES Act passed in March in the immediate aftermath of the pandemic exploded our budget deficit and wasted untold billions of taxpayer dollars. It sent billions in stimulus checks to dead people and created a broken, supercharged unemployment system that paid most unemployed people more not to work. And that same unemployment expansion ended up losing more money, $26 billion to fraud alone, than the entire unemployment system spent in 2019. That is stunning. Brad Palumbo says the saving grace of the CARES Act supposedly was the paycheck, the paycheck protection system, which was intended to help businesses stay afloat amid the pandemic. But there's a new report from the Wall Street Journal that shows this, too, was corrupted by endemic fraud and abuse. For background, the Paycheck Protection Program gave businesses taxpayer-backed, quote, loans to help them survive government-mandated shutdowns. And then the loans were forgiven. Basically, they were cash grants as long as the companies abided by certain rules and requirements. Because after all, no money comes from government without a few strings attached. That's pretty normal. Yet essentially, they used the honor system to determine eligibility. Brad Palumbo says that's right. They sent out hundreds of billions of taxpayer dollars out the door with hardly any verification. The result... The federal government is swamped with reports of potential fraud in the Paycheck Protection Program, again, according to the Wall Street Journal. Evidence is growing that many others took advantage of the program's open-door design. Banks and the government allowed companies to self-certify that they needed the funds with little vetting. A federal watchdog within the Small Business Administration said there were strong indicators of widespread potential abuse and fraud in the PPP. The watchdog counted tens of thousands of companies that received PPP loans for which they appear to have been ineligible. The journal's report continues. And tens of thousands of organizations also appear to have received more money than they should have based on their headcounts and compensation rates. Which brings up the question, so what did we get in return for all this expenditure and waste? Well, MIT economist David Otter says it seems that a lot of cash went to businesses that would have otherwise maintained relatively similar employment levels. A study Otter conducted found that the Paycheck Protection Program only preserved roughly 2.3 million jobs, which comes out to about $224,000 in taxpayer expenditure per job. Now, unfortunately, Americans really ought not be surprised that the COVID-19 stimulus package has proven a blunt, inefficient tool rife with wasteful expenditure. 
This flaw is, by its very nature, inherent in all forms of government spending. The bigger question is, why? And Brad Palumbo says it's simple. People are inherently more responsible when they're spending their own money. When government officials are spending other people's money, they have much less incentive to be frugal and discerning. Famed free market economist Milton Friedman explained this principle adeptly when he said there are four ways in which you can spend money. You can spend your own money on yourself. When you do that, why, then you really watch out what you're doing. You try to get the most for your money. Then you can spend your own money on someone else, he went on. For example, I can buy a birthday present for someone. Well, then I'm not so careful about the content of the present, but I'm very careful about the cost. Then the economist said I can spend somebody else's money on myself. And if I spend someone else's money on myself, then I'm sure going to have a good lunch. Finally, I can spend somebody else's money on somebody else. Friedman concluded, and if I spend someone else's money on somebody else, I'm not concerned about how much it is, and I'm not concerned about what I get. And that's government. So Brad Palumbo says, if the rampant waste and fraud that plagued the CARES Act prove anything, it's that simply throwing more and more taxpayer money around without care is a terribly inefficient way of solving problems. And he says lawmakers should keep this reality in mind as they debate how much more of our money to waste away. Look, I have I have no beef with the people who found themselves, you know, trying to apply for those funds. But I would ask you to consider, is it a proper function of government? And if the answer is, well, I don't know for sure. Then I guess there's part of your answer right there. Maybe it's something we ought not be messing with. By the way, join the conversation. 801-331-8113. Better still, jump on over to my website, thebrianhideshow.com, and spend a little bit of time perusing the show notes. I don't say this to brag, but I do put in a fair amount of time each day in researching and finding interesting, hopefully thought-provoking subjects to share. And I always will include links to those articles in the show notes. And there's almost always more articles than I have time to get to in the course of a program. So find the time to check it out. If nothing else, you'll find some good material to uh, help pass the time as you wait to see, you know, what happens next. Which in 2020, as you well know, can be pretty interesting. Let's shift gears here for a moment and talk about uh, an election without a mandate. Why is this so important? Well, I can't be the only one who's noticed what I think is is the most disturbing aspect of last week's election, and that is the absolute glee with which certain politicians are anticipating the great day of their perceived power. Oh, my goodness. Their transition teams are already, ooh, we can't wait. We can't wait. To do what? Well, to spend other people's money, of course, and to assert authority over other people. They're really excited about it. And yeah, they have a lot of sycophants who are, you know, excited and urging them on. Cool, cool. Here we go. I think I was reading yesterday in Texas. There is a glut of anti right to keep and bear arms bills. There's a, a glut of gun control bills that is unprecedented in that state's history. Texas. I don't know if you've ever been there, but uh, folks in Texas take that right to keep and bear arms pretty seriously. 
and for that state to be seeing a record number of bills being filed to impose gun control. That just is that's a little inside peek into the psyche of these politicians who are thinking this is it. This is it. We have a mandate. Now, of course, the truth of the matter is they don't. And this is true from the presidential race right on down to, you know, the the town council somewhere in the U.S. If anything, that is a good thing, though. We're going to talk about what it means to have had an election without a mandate. Anders Koskinen has a great take on it. We'll share that with you just the other side of these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Hey, want to mention that our show is brought to you in part each weekday at this time by Nikki's Wholesale Food Warehouse. Now, this is going to be a particular interest to my listeners in and around the Salt Lake City area. Even if you happen to be passing through Salt Lake City, headed north or south, it would be worth your time to stop into Nikki's Wholesale Food Warehouse and see just how far you can stretch that grocery dollar. I know a lot of folks are stocking up right now, mainly because of, uh, well, let's, I'm not even going to say the perceived uncertainty. The, it's, it's real uncertainty as to what's going to be coming in the next few weeks. And so if you are one of those people looking to, uh, you know, sock away a few extra things for the freezer, talk to my friends at Nikki's Wholesale Food Warehouse. They have not only a huge walk-in freezer, but also a great big uh, freezer truck right there on the premises and a ton of great deals on meat, whether it's pork loin, whether it's pork ribs, uh, 40-pound boxes of chicken breasts. I think I saw about a 40-pound box of chicken wings, which got me thinking, hmm, I could pass some time with those wings on my smoker. Um, They also have a number of different canned goods, fresh produce, cheese, all kinds of things. More than I can possibly list here. Go to their Facebook page, Nikki's, that's N-I-C-K-E-Y-S, Wholesale Food Warehouse. And you can get directions. You can see a pictorial of what's new for that day. And yes, they do take all major credit cards. They do take EBT. And everything comes with a 100% money-back guarantee. Totally worth your while. Nikki's Wholesale Food Warehouse. Let's talk about what it means to uh, have just gone through an election without a mandate. I know the politicians are acting like, oh, we got a mandate. We got a mandate. Meaning, we eked out a victory, or we, in, th- in this case, at least in the presidential race, we believe we've eked out a victory. And so, therefore, you have to do everything we tell you. Anybody else getting that feel? No? No? Bueller? No? Okay. I think we're all seeing it. Why would we have to do whatever somebody says because of the way an election went? Well, because we have a mandate. We have a mandate to fix the environment. We have a mandate to do something about gun violence. We have a mandate to end systemic racism. In reality, they have no such thing. Here's how Anders Koskinen describes it. He says, Washington Post columnist Paul Waldman somehow contorted the mixed and yet unresolved 2020 election results to simultaneously claim that mandates do not really exist, but nonetheless, 
Joe Biden has one. Now, it's important to refute this spurious claim because Biden and Kamala Harris will use any excuse they can to push a laundry list of progressive legislation and executive branch rulemaking. And Anders Koskinen says Americans should not allow this, especially under such a false pretense. Now, in the first part of his article, Waldman claims the mandates are mostly an artificial political construct. Now, he may be correct in this assessment, but then he states that Republicans know that if you act like you have a mandate, then you do. So it's far more accurate to make this phrase conditional. Two things are necessary to have a mandate. That is the votes to push your agenda through and then the political will to do so. The Washington Post column then lapses into a series of ill-founded assumptions and statistical half-truths seeking to provide a data-driven justification for a Biden mandate, thus marching the opposite direction of the notion that acting like you have a mandate delivers it to you. Firstly, Anders Koskinen points out there's the claim that Biden won despite the extraordinary voter suppression effort of Republicans. Waldman's own publication contradicts this claim of vote suppression, reporting that the 2020 election saw at least a 63% voter turnout. That is a rate not seen since the 1960s. The counting process is ongoing, but if the Post is right in its estimate that that final vote totals will eclipse a 66% turnout rate, this may actually end up being the election with the highest participation rate in living memory. Such high turnout is a function of the COVID-19 pandemic, combined with the fact that progressive and liberal causes achieved nearly everything they wanted in terms of extended early voting periods and lower security mail-in ballot efforts. A projected 161 million Americans voted in the 2020 presidential election. Just for perspective, that's 23 million more than in 2016. And Anders Koskinen says, really, it makes far more sense to argue that Biden won because of the changes to election laws this year than it does to say that he won in spite of them. Waldman's claim that Biden's popular vote lead, 3.3% at the time of writing, is tantamount to a blowout thanks to the current state of party polarization. And he says that's ridiculous. Far bigger victories were claimed just a few years ago by Biden's old boss, President Barack Obama, when he won by 3.9% in 2012 and by 7.3% in 2008. Another reason to question Biden's alleged mandate is this year's legislative election results. And again, at the time of writing, the Washington Post had called 420 races for seats in the House of Representatives, with a net Republican gain of five seats. Of the remaining 15 seats, 10 are currently leaning Republican, representing an additional seven-seat pickup by the GOP. This would leave Democrats with 223 seats, just five more than the bare minimum required for a majority, a decided decline from what Democrats had prior to the election. With such a slim lead, congressional Democratic leadership will need to maintain a tight leash on its 2021 members. Yet Waldman paints this situation as victory for Biden. Additionally, he pins a great deal on the fact that if Democrats win both seats in Georgia runoffs, they will control the Senate, albeit with Kamala Harris casting a lot of tie-breaking votes in what's otherwise a 50-50 deadlock. Based on Georgia's electoral history, Anders Koskinen says it's unlikely that Democrats will achieve even that tenuous 50-50 grasp on the Senate. 
In 2000, popular former Democratic Governor Zell Miller was appointed by his successor to fill the seat of deceased Republican Senator Paul Coverdell. The 2000 special election, curiously, was a nonpartisan affair, and the conservative Miller won handily. Well, the last time that a U.S. Senate election in Georgia ended in a win for a Democrat running as a Democrat was Max Cleland's victory in 1996. Since then, Georgia has had seven partisan U.S. Senate elections with Republicans winning all of them. The closest of these races was in 2002, when then-Congressman Saxby Chambliss defeated the incumbent Cleland by 6.9%. Thus, the odds that Georgia goes blue for one of the two Senate seats on offer is not terribly high, especially since both seats are held by Republican incumbents. The odds that the state elects both Democrats under the present circumstances, well, that's even more remote. So the bottom line is, while Biden may end up in the White House come January 2021, he will not have the votes to govern as he sees fit. And without that, no mandate can possibly exist. Now, maybe it just sounds like, well, Brian, what you are is just a contrarian, no matter what uh, the Democrats or well, no matter what politicians are saying. OK, the, the narrative managers, no matter what they're saying, you're just going, no, no, sir is not. <laughs> it feels that way sometimes. But think about it for a moment. You need to question that narrative. Why does somebody insist you have to believe this? I think the best analogy I've seen is that uh, because we have a Muppet show playing out before us and the insistence on the part of those who are putting on the show is you've got to believe it's real. Even if the facts haven't lined up to support their version of what is real. It's a story and we're supposed to stay on story, you know, stay on that storyline and not deviate from it. I just have it in my head. You're not going to stay free very long if you take that approach to life. So be a skeptic. Question it. Caller, welcome to the show. Oh, I've been questioning a lot of things. We have the power to do executive orders, though. You know, that's a problem. You know, with the uh, mentality of these folks. Any particular executive order that you're concerned about? Oh, I think uh, access to buying firearms, you know, assault and weapon, weapons. I, I think that's a bad thing, you know. I, th- I think that cow left the barn quite some time ago. In fact, millions of such cows left the barn this year, and I don't think everybody who bought them uh, did so with the understanding, but if the president signs a piece of paper, I guess I have to hand it over. You wouldn't. Well, I, mean, I wouldn't. Them, being able to purchase them, you know. Once, once, once the ability, once the executive order comes in, well, all right, so we're going to ban the AR-15, right? What are you going to ban next with the AR-15? The ammunition. Yeah, there's there's no need for that right now. It's it's tough enough to find. We're talking about one year and billions of dollars in orders backlogged. Well, you know, there's just a lot. And, and the Paris Climate Agreement, I mean, what do you think about that? Like, all of a sudden, we're back into that. Yeah, I, I agree. That one, we had best steer clear of. But again, isn't the Senate the one that's supposed to ratify treaties? Listen, hang on, Rob. Hang on through the break. Let's come back. Let's pick this up just the other side of these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Rob is on the line with me. Rob, thanks for hanging through the break. All right, give me give me your take on what to, what do we need to be focusing on? In your estimation, where would our attention best be spent? Right now at this per, at this time, per, this time right now, I think we need to we need to find out what the hell happened with this election as far as the votes. We need to make sure that all these these votes were legitimate. People are alive. They were eligible to vote. They didn't vote twice. And the votes were correctly counted and gone in the right direction. Because I think that is the most important thing, no matter who wins. Because once that's not sacred anymore, we have no country. Because that's what this country is founded on. So that's my first thing okay. that I would say. I think that's most important. Okay, I, I'm with you. And actually, you, you've actually segway, segued into a topic that I really wanted to go to. And that is the question of legitimacy, elections and legitimacy, because um, regardless of how we feel about this candidate or that candidate, um, it's the legitimacy of the whole system right now that's hanging in the balance. And it ain't looking good, you know, for those who want to trust the system. Yeah, I mean, we have to be able to have a system in this country that, that without that system of voting and it being, you know, the true thing. We have no country. Okay. So, thanks, thanks for hanging with me through the break, Rob. Appreciate your call. James Bovard, that's a name you've heard me talk about before. Uh, picked up a piece of his off of uh, the American Institute for Economic Research website, A-I-E-R, I'm sorry, AIER.org. And this is called Elections and Legitimacy. This is a pretty thought-provoking piece. I'll have it posted in the show notes. You can access them at com. He says this year's presidential election is the fourth one since 2000 to be marred by either widespread allegations of voter fraud or of foreign interference. Politicians and pundits have long counted on elections to wave a magic wand of legitimacy over the reign of whoever's designated the winner. But James Bovard says Americans are increasingly wondering if the endlessly trumpeted consent of the governed has simply become another sham to keep them paying and obeying. And he reminds us, 20 years ago, America was in the throes of a fiercely disputed recount battle in Florida. Democratic presidential nominee Vice President Al Gore won the national popular vote, but the Electoral College verdict was unclear. Florida's 25 electoral votes would give either Gore or Republican candidate George W. Bush the 270 votes needed to win the presidency. Six million votes were cast in Florida, and Bush initially had a winning margin of 537 votes. But the count was a complete mess. Some Florida counties had antiquated voting equipment, while others had harebrained ballot designs that confounded voters, resulting in dangling chads, butterfly ballots, and other unclear preferences. After the Florida Supreme Court ordered a manual recount of disputed votes in all counties... The Bush campaign team quickly filed briefs with the Supreme Court seeking to stop the process. And in a controversial decision, the Supreme Court, in a 5-4 to four ruling, stopped the recount because it could result in a cloud upon what George W. Bush claims to be the legitimacy of his election. That's what Justice Antonin Scalia wrote. Justice John Paul Stevens dissented, quote, The Florida court's ruling reflects the basic principle inherent in our Constitution and our democracy, 
that every legal vote should be counted. No such luck. Bovard says two days later, the same Supreme Court majority blocked any subsequent recounting because it was not well calculated to sustain the confidence that all citizens must have the have in the outcome of elections. In other words, sustaining confidence was more important than counting votes. Justice Stevens again dissented. We have never been before. We have never before called into question the substantive standard by which a state determines that a vote has been legally cast. So the bottom line is the 2000 election results seemed almost as shaky as the story of the Lady of the Lake giving Excalibur sword to Arthur, thereby signifying his right to rule England. At a minimum, the outcome of the 2000 presidential election was decided by lawyers and political appointees or justices, not by voters. Former President Jimmy Carter observed in 2001, as we have seen in Florida and some other states, the expected error rate in some jurisdictions is as high as 3% of the vote total. Four years later, four, four years later rather, George W. Bush narrowly won re-election after a campaign that was boosted by numerous false terror attack warnings that helped frighten voters into giving him another four years. Ohio was the key state in determining the outcome that time, and the results appeared tainted by numerous decisions by, elect- by Republican election officials who favored Bush. Democrats also charged that the electronic voting machines used in much of Ohio had been manipulated to produce misleading vote totals. In January 2005, Democratic members of the U.S. House of Representatives launched a brief challenge to the legitimacy of the 2004 presidential election. Representative Maxine Waters complained that many states used more sophisticated technology for lottery tickets than they did for elections. Quote, incredibly, even in those few jurisdictions that have moved to electronic voting, we do not require a verifiable paper trail to protect against vote tampering. Republican congressmen went ballistic. Representative Rob Portman from Ohio accused the Democrats of seeking to obstruct the will of the American people. Representative J.D. Hayworth from Arizona bewailed that the protest serves to plant the insidious seeds of doubt in the electoral process. And Representative Roy Blunt of Missouri, the House Majority Whip, sought to put the entire government above questioning. He said it is the greatest democracy in the history of the world and is run by people who will step forward and make a system work in ways that nobody would believe until they see it produce the result of what the people want to have happen on Election Day. End quote. Blunt's nobody would believe phrase was more prescient than he intended. Now, James Bovard says for tens of millions of Americans and for convention halls full of editorial writers, the 2016 presidential campaign is, uh, presidential election results rather were forever tainted by allegations that the Trump campaign colluded with the Russians to score an upset victory. Those allegations spurred a special counsel investigation that haunted most of Trump's presidency and helped Democrats capture control of the House of Representatives in 2018. In 2019, special counsel Robert Mueller finally admitted that no case of collusion existed. But we've since learned that there was pervasive collusion between the Obama administration's officials and federal agencies to target Trump's 2016 campaign. And as George Washington University professor Jonathan Turley observed, the media ignored one of the biggest stories in decades— that the Obama administration targeted the campaign of the opposing party based on false evidence.
Instead, the media cheered secretive federal agencies that had interfered in American politics. Washington Post columnist Eugene Robinson captured the Beltway's verdict, quote, God bless the deep state. The media's veneration will make it easier for the FBI, CIA, and National Security Agency to meddle with, if not fix, future elections. Now, this year's presidential election may be the most fraud-ridden since 1876, when four states had disputed results, and Congress gave the presidency to Republican Rutherford Hayes, despite ample evidence of conniving. Earlier this year, some states mailed ballots to all the names on the voting lists, providing thousands of dead people the chance to vote from the grave. More than 92 million people voted by mail. President Trump warned that that shift to vote in mail or to mail in voting rather, but would result in the most corrupt vote in our nation's history. Shortly before Demo- before election day, Democratic candidate Joe Biden boasted, "We have put together, I think, the most extensive and inclusive voter fraud organization in the history of American politics." Now, a Reuters fact check analysis revealed Biden's comment was a slip of the tongue and that he likely likely meant voter protection. Okay, Dr. Freud, thank you. Uh, Since Election Day, the same media outlets have insisted there was no corruption in the Biden family. Now they're assuring Americans there was no significant voter fraud. The bottom line is this. The more power presidents capture, the more facts they can suppress. The federal government's creating trillions of pages of new secrets every year effectively make it impossible for average citizens to learn the truth about foreign policy till long after U.S. bombs have dropped. And Biden is unlikely to end the pervasive secrecy that makes a mockery of self-government. Now, in his victory speech last Saturday, Biden pledged to restore the soul of America. But James Bovard says Americans were not voting for a faith healer. They were selecting a chief executive for a federal government. Only 20% of Americans nowadays trust the government to do the right thing most of the time. That's according to a Pew Research Center study. And James Bovard says the election results will likely erode further federal legitimacy at a time when Uncle Sam has absolutely no trust to spare. How many more election debacles and brazen abuses of power does Washington believe the American people will tolerate? Like it or not... We're going to get our answer to that question within the next few weeks. Hang on. It could be a bit of a bumpy ride. This is The Brian Hyde Show.